When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Welcome back to Ask the Expert on Tudor's Dynasty. I'm your host, Steph Storr, and we are here to talk about a Plantagenet king that has the most confusing family tree that I've ever seen, and therefore unwittingly kicked off the dramatic, intriguing, and bloody 32-year-long fight for the English throne that we now know as the Wars of the Roses. Who is that king? Edward III, of course. And, of course, it's not a Wars of the Roses chat without our friend, author-historian Matthew Lewis. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me back, Steph. It's always a pleasure to come and talk to Tudor's Dynasty. Well, I admit that I'm sitting here staring right at a printout of this family tree. And no matter how many times I go over it, I always seem to forget or miss something. So anyway, today's discussion is going to focus primarily on Edward III's children and the, quote, problems they caused. So although I'll want to get to the listener questions in just a moment, let's give you the floor first so that you can give us a little Edward biography, if you will. Certainly. So Edward III, quite often billed as the perfect medieval king. Um, He was born in 1312, the son of Edward II and Isabella of France. He becomes king of England in 1327 Uh, while he's still uh, 14 years of age, so before his 15th birthday. And that's the result of his mother falling out with his father uh, and together with Roger Mortimer invading England and deposing Edward II in favour of his son, who then becomes King Edward III. And because he's a child, you have this minority period during which Roger Mortimer sort of gathers lots and lots of power for himself, makes himself Earl of March, is an incredibly important man in the kingdom. And then you have this incident in um, 1327 at Nottingham Castle, where Edward goes and effectively arrests Mortimer and says, right, now I am taking control. I'm going to be king in my own right. Uh, And Mortimer, I mean, he's tried for, for treason and executed by Edward. And then he goes on to rule for 50 years in total, so he's king until 1377. Dies in his mid-60s, by which point we think he's had potentially a couple of strokes. He is in poor health. His sons are sort of looking after and ruling the kingdom for him. So it's kind of an inglorious end. But in the middle of all of that reign, I mean, his, his reign gets taken up by things like the Black Death, so he deals with the plague that sweeps across Europe. But I guess what we probably know him best for is his involvement in the start of the Hundred Years' War. So he's quite often blamed for for kicking off the Hundred Years' War, but there's an argument that says it's more to do with Philip, King Philip in France, sort of taking land that belonged to Edward. And Edward's way of getting back at Philip was, rather than claiming his own bit of land around Aquitaine and Gascony, he just claims the whole of the French throne. And that kicks off this Hundred Years' War. So you have lots of early success, uh, the Battle of Sluice, a naval victory that they win, the famous battles at Poitiers and Cressy, and he makes huge gains in France, but then it all sorts of gets stymied by the the Black Death, and then further on by Edward's poor health. He does eventually come to peace terms with France, and he gives up his claim to the throne, 
although English kings would continue to claim to be kings of, of France for centuries to follow this. So he he's quite often seen as a, as a long-reigning king. He reigns for 50 years, quite often seen as a very, very successful medieval king. But we do have this situation in which it's his descendants sort of in the middle of the next century, in the middle of the 15th century, that, that sort of tear England apart, arguing with each other over who has the right to the throne based on their descent from Edward III. So lots of monarchs have problems. You know, Henry VIII famously couldn't get a son. Well, Edward sort of ends up with the opposite problem of almost having too many sons, too many descendants who go on to cause problems um, a long time after his death. So yeah, all of the Wars of the Roses will tend to trace itself back to to levels or quality of descent from Edward III, if that makes sense. It sure does. Yes. So back to the transition from his father to him again, because his mother had his father deposed, one of our listeners was wondering, did he have any the best word that we have here maybe is baggage. (laughs) Did he have any baggage about that, that he carried into his reign that affected the way that he ruled? You see, with one of the things we don't know is what actually happened to his father. So there is this story that he's killed at Barclay Castle. But there is also a school of thought that says that Edward II survived. There are bits and pieces of evidence that some historians believe and some utterly discount that suggests that Edward went and lived in Italy as a monk, perhaps, that he he went and took on a career in the church. So we get these bits of evidence where people come to visit Edward III, particularly when he's on the continent, and they, they described sometimes in some of the sources as being his father, or someone thought it was his dad that came to visit him. So we don't actually know what happens to Edward's father, though I would suspect Edward did know whether he died or whether he survived. I'm sure Edward would have known pretty clearly what happened. But I think he saw that his father sort of... I mean, Edward II is famous for having lots of favourites. So it starts off um, with Piers Gaveston um, in his, his early reign. And Piers is sort of arrested and executed by other nobles who don't like the influence that he has over Edward II. But what really comes brings it to crisis point is when he has a favourite called Hugh Dispenser the Younger, who is the son of Hugh Dispenser the Older, because everybody has the same name still. Um, But Hugh Dispenser seems to have really annoyed Isabella. So we're quite often told that Edward and Isabella didn't get on, that Isabella hated all of Edward's favourites, but they seem to have actually had a pretty good relationship, I think. And Isabella doesn't ever seem to have been too worried about Piers Gaveston and others of Edward's favourites. There's something about Hugh Dispenser the Younger that she really, really dislikes. And it's at this point that she uh, goes off to France to see her brother, King Charles. Um, and, and Charles V wants Edward II to do homage for his lands in France. Um, and Edward sort of doesn't want to go, doesn't want to do it, doesn't want to leave England and so sends his son, Edward, with Isabella. And this is the point at which she takes him to France and sort of takes him there. So Edward II's reign is, is kind of blighted by this, by this idea of having favourites. And I think what you really see with Edward III is a much more collegiate approach. He's a man who seems to get on with everybody and everybody likes him and wants to be loyal to him. So he's he's quite obsessed with Arthurian ideas. So he starts the the Order of the Garter, which is a, an order of chivalry that still exists today. And that's centred around two kind of tournament teams. And he builds, he, he wants to build kind of a round table and this big Arthurian theme at Windsor. And I think that's partly to do with the fact that you have that Arthurian ideal of the round table where nobody sits at the head. So there are no favourites. No more will there be a king's favourite who stands out amongst the rest. So I think sometimes you see throughout Edward III's reign that he's very careful to get on with everybody and not to have the favourites that his father had, which is, I think is what really cost Edward II the throne in the end. It's actually very refreshing to hear that that the people of England weren't necessarily jaded by what had happened with Edward II and, and really did like Edward III. So let's go now 
into his marriage. At one point, at what point does he get married, and how was his new bride chosen? He becomes engaged to to Philippa of Hainaut, who will eventually become his wife in 1325, and this is when he goes over to France with his mother. So he's sort of 12, 13 years old at the time, and we see lots in the in the records. We see lots of Edward II being really, really uncertain and uncomfortable about sending his son to France. And he goes with his mom, Isabella, and Edward II tells him repeatedly, whatever you do when you're over there, don't get married. Don't get married without my permission. Don't let yourself get backed into a marriage that I haven't approved and given you permission for. So almost as soon as they get over there, Isabella has him betrothed to Philippa of Hainault, which you know, freaks Edward II out completely. And this is partly about Isabella building um, an alliance around her to help her uh, depose Edward II, or at least oppose him. I'm not sure her original plan was to actually depose her husband. I think it had more to do with chasing off Hugh Dispenser the Younger, but it ends up in Edward being deposed, and that may be more to do with Mortimer than it actually is with Isabella. But they they eventually get married properly uh, in 1328. So the year after um, Edward III sort of comes to the throne, um, they get married properly and, and kind of cement that alliance. But also, I mean, they seem to get on incredibly well. They have an incredibly productive marriage. They seem, as far as we can tell from any medieval marriage, they seem to have been happy with each other. You know, she lives until... 1369 so doesn't you know predecease him by all that much about eight years um and aside from you know we know he has a mistress Alice Perez but you know outside of having mistresses they seem to have actually had a a good strong relationship given that it was built initially on kind of deceit and trickery and an alliance to defeat his father it seems to have actually worked out quite well well then before we move on to their children together which is actually why we're here today. Um, let's answer one of our listeners' questions about illegitimate children. Did he have any? And if he did, did any of them cause any problems the way that his children ended up causing? As far as we know, he had three illegitimate children with that mistress, Alice Perez. There's there's some talk about um, a man named Nicholas Littlington, who was abbot at Westminster, of him potentially being another illegitimate child of Edward III, but um, some history, you know, a lot of historians kind of discount that. Um, Ian Mortimer in particular, who I, I will happily defer to on all things Edward III, says that's just not feasible. It isn't the case. But we do know that he has three illegitimate children by Alice Perez. So one son named Sir John Sotheray and two daughters named Joan and Jane. Um, we don't know too much about them um, and we know that they don't particularly cause any trouble so Sir John Sotheray is knighted, knighted in 1377 and he gets married to uh, Maud Percy who is a sister of the, the future first Earl of Northumberland. We don't know anything much about his daughters Joan and Jane. Uh, we know that Joan married um, a lawyer from London and when he died in 1437. He had a, a brass memorial put out for them, um, which shows him and Joan lying there together. But we don't know too much about them, and we, they didn't cause any problems. So it was really just Edward's legitimate children that are the the pains, I guess. Okay, now the big question: Edward the Third and Philippa have how many children, and who are they? They have a whole lot of children. Um, too they many. Have, yeah, 13 altogether that we know of. Some some children are less certain to have definitely existed than others. It's, it's the perils of medieval childbirth, even at the, the highest ranks of the nobility and, and royalty. They're not always all that well recorded, particularly the younger children. So they altogether, we think they have eight sons and five daughters. But of those children, three sons and one daughter don't survive infancy so they, there's five sons 
and four daughters who live to adulthood and sort of have a an effect on uh, England. And it's mostly, I'm going to sound horrible here, but it is mostly the sons that have the effect, um, at least in part because the daughters have more of an impact actually in Spain and Portugal um, and places like that. So um, it's mostly the sons that really cause the problems for England, but there's, yeah, there's five of them and there's four daughters. Okay. So it doesn't sound horrible. It's just the facts. That's the guys created all the drama. That's, that's where we are. We're, we're letting the, we're letting the ladies just sit over there for a second on the shelf because they didn't cause any problems. So it's the sons. So who were their sons together? The, the, the ones that did not pass on early. So the, the oldest child uh, is Edward the Black Prince. Um, so he's born in 1330 when his dad is about 17. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's not that much of an age difference between Edward III and Edward the Black Prince. Edward is most famous for being a hugely successful soldier during the Hundred Years' War but he dies the year before his dad, so never succeeds him as king. And Edward III is succeeded by Edward the Black Prince's son as Richard II, so Edward III's grandson. The next son who survives to adulthood is Lionel of Antwerp, um, and, and of Antwerp because he's born in Antwerp. He's the, the first Duke of Clarence, Um and he marries a lady called Elizabeth de Burr, who is the Countess of Ulster, so brings lots and lots of Irish lands and titles um, into that part of the family. Um, Lionel has one daughter, Philippa, uh, who is the, the fifth Countess of Ulster, um, and she marries um, Edmund Mortimer, who is the third Earl of March, and the, the Mortimer line, I think, is something that we'll no doubt talk about a little bit later with the Wars of the Roses stuff a bit more closely. But um, Lionel's wife, Elizabeth, passes away and he um, marries again um, to uh, an Italian noble lady, Violante Visconti. Um, and he dies in 1368 at the, the feast to celebrate his second wedding. So there's been some suggestion that perhaps he was poisoned uh, or that he fell ill but he was only about 30 when he dies. And and Lionel, actually, we we think Lionel was about six foot 11 or something crazy like that. He was you know very nearly seven feet tall. Um, so when we think about people like Edward IV and where that kind of height and things came from, it probably comes from descent from Lionel of Antwerp. So he was an absolute giant of a man. Uh, the third son is John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster. So alongside Edward the Black Prince, probably the most famous of Edward III's sons. Uh, he's born in 1340, so 10 years younger than Edward the Black Prince. And he marries Blanche of Lancaster, and that's how he acquires the Lancaster title and becomes Duke of Lancaster. Their child, their, their oldest son, and heir is the future Henry IV, so he's known as Henry of Bolingbroke because he's born at Bolingbroke Castle during his lifetime, um, and he becomes Duke of, of Derby before he falls out with Richard II and ends up coming to take the throne off his first cousin, Richard II, in 1399, becoming the first kind of Lancastrian king as Henry IV. But John of Gaunt goes on to marry twice more, so he marries... Um, a, a Spanish princess um, from Castile and had uh, a daughter there. And that part of the family becomes really important in the history of Spain and Portugal and getting lots of Edward III's but, but Lancastrian blood into the royal families of Portugal and Spain. And then he marries for a third time to Catherine Swinford, who we know had been his mistress for a long time. She'd been the the nurse uh, to his children with Blanche of Lancaster and had worked in their their nursery. So that old thing of you know having an affair with the babysitter, I guess, is the equivalent. Uh, he marries Catherine Swinford as his third wife, and they already have uh, three children together, the Beaufort children, who they, they get legitimised uh, and they become the House of Beaufort, who again are incredibly important 
during the Wars of the Roses. The, the fourth son uh, that they have is Edmund of Langley, born at Langley, uh, who is the first Duke of York. And so descended from him is, is the male line of the House of York. We have Edmund, the first Duke of York. His oldest son is Edward, the second Duke, who dies without any children at the Battle of Agincourt. Uh, and his younger brother is Richard of Connorsborough, and he is executed just before they leave for Agincourt. So that's how the Dukedom of York then passes to Richard of Connorsborough's only son, who is Richard, third Duke of York, the famous Richard Duke of York from the Wars of the Roses. Um, so he is a, a grandson of Edmund of Langley, a great grandson of Edward III. And then the youngest son that they have is Thomas of Woodstock, who is the first Duke of Gloucester. Uh, he's born in 1355, so um, 25 years younger than his older brother, the Black Prince. Um, so he's the, the kind of the eighth son, but the fifth one to survive. He's born at Woodstock Palace, and he marries Eleanor de Bowen, uh, a, a rich heiress. And he is the um, the forebear of the Borchet family, but also of the Staffords, who become the Earls of uh, the Dukes of Buckingham, sorry, um, who again are also important during the Wars of the Roses. Um, so we can kind of see, if we think of all of our main players from the Wars of the Roses, we can kind of trace all of their descent back to to at least one of the children of Edward III through various different lines. I don't even understand. I'm I'm telling myself that you didn't have all that memorized in your reading, but I bet you really do have it all memorized. There's just so much to know. Okay, so now the Edward the Black Prince. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Uh, first of all, why was he called the Black Prince? And then if you could tell us a little bit about he, how he died, uh, starting all of all of the drama and issues here. Yeah, so why he's called the Black Prince is not entirely clear. It used to be believed that it was because he had a, a black, dark reputation because of some um, effectively war crimes that he's accused of during the Hundred Years' War in France, you know, that he would go into towns and, and burn them and indiscriminately kill civilians. But some of the source material that points to that has kind of been debunked a little bit now, and we don't think he did commit those crimes that he's been accused of. I mean, he was killing people all over France, clearly, but not in the way that has often been described. So the other the other school of thought is that he's called the Black Prince because the armour that he wore was painted black. So he was literally just a black prince when he was wearing all of his armour. But we don't really entirely know why he's called the Black Prince. Um, I mean, he is incredibly militarily successful. So as I said, he's he's only sort of 17 years younger than his dad. And so he takes part in all of his dad's wars um, in France. So we know that he's at the Battle of, of Crecy, in 1346 uh, and he's so he's only 16 years old at this point um, and he's there kind of in the front lines and we know at one point he's taking a bit of a battering and, and he's not doing very well and a messenger goes back to Edward III and says sorry you know should, should we go and send some help for your son here he's in a bit of danger and Edward III says no we will let him fight his corner and I would have him win his spurs this day, you know, without any of my help. And I think that that comes across quite harsh. But Edward sort of says, you know, I want him to have the glory of this day, not for, for me to go steaming in and take that away from him. So at one point, the Black Prince is sort of knocked from the ground and knocked unconscious. Um, but he comes around and carries on fighting and eventually, you know, does win his spurs and sort of win the day. Um, so his dad clearly believes that he's an incredibly capable soldier, even at the age of, of 16. And so one of the stories that we get from the Battle of Crecy is that uh, one of the, the participants on the French side is John, who is the, the blind king of Bohemia. Um, and John, you know, he's pretty much lost all of his sight. He's he's getting on a bit. He's about 50 years old at this point. And he just wants to have one last glorious ride into battle so he has two of his bodyguards 
sort of tied to his horse on either side of him to guide him into battle. And he heads in and fights. And, and at the end of the battle, he's found uh, um, dead with his two bodyguards still sort of tied to him. They're both dead as well. And the Black Prince sort of finds his body and he's so struck by the story of John's bravery and chivalry that he um, he takes the the ostrich feather badge that John of Bohemia used as his own personal badge. And he takes John's motto of Ichdeen, Ichdeen, I serve. And that still today is the badge of the Prince of Wales, the badge and the motto of the Prince of Wales. So that goes all the way back to the Black Prince, you know, believing that John, the blind King of Bohemia, was someone worthy of, of praise and taking on his badge and his motto out of respect for a fallen comrade. Uh, and we know he's also at the Battle of Poitiers um, a few years later. And at that battle, he manages to take into custody the King of France. You know, he captures the King of France and again, wins a, a glorious victory, but treats the King of France with, with a great deal of honour. So when they get back to the, the camp on the evening of the battle, it's the King of France who is treated with the utmost respect and the Black Prince sort of personally serves the King of France. So I think he's viewed very much as an incredibly chivalric figure, uh, a, a real knight. And I think he's kind of been brought up and indoctrinated into his dad's wars with France, but also his dad's ideas of this Arthurian legend that he's trying to craft around his own court. And so I think I think when Edward III sort of begins to abandon the war with France a little bit, I think the Black Prince struggles to come to terms with that a bit because it, this has been his whole life and he's sort of been indoctrinated into it and is now being asked to switch all of that off. And I, I think he struggles to let go of the war with France when Edward III wants to. But he, I mean, Edward, he's a, a campaigner. He's been a campaigner all of his life and he, he effectively, he falls ill. So he ends up in, in Aquitaine. He's made um, Prince of Aquitaine in southwestern France and tries to rule there for a while. But his health is pretty rapidly failing. We don't know exactly what's wrong with him, but it could be something like dysentery. It could be a, a, an illness that he just can't shake off from all of those years of campaigning. But he falls into kind of really, really ill health towards the end of his life and dies in uh, 1376 at the age of uh, 45. So he's about a week short of his um, 46th birthday when he dies. And that's just a year before his father dies as well. Um, so he's, he's remembered as this hugely successful knight, this hugely chivalric figure, uh, an incredibly successful soldier. But ultimately... You know, his life is is cut short by the fact that he spends it all campaigning and it and it takes its a huge toll on his health and and sends him to an early grave effectively. What was the reaction by the people of England after his after his death? Were they I mean he's who was expected to take his father's place as king. So were people um upset by this? Did people love him at the time? even then or is his you know positive reputation more modern i think he was very much a national hero at the time you know he was associated with Cressy and poitiers and all of these huge victories against the french um and i think as you say you know people would have lived their lives under edward iii preparing for edward the fourth you know edward the black prince would be the next king of england and one of the problems that that happens when he dies is is who will succeed so we know we know now that richard ii succeeds the black prince's son but that wasn't always necessarily the case so we get this whole um performance around what's called the entail of edward iii so edward iii's decision on where the crown should go and he seems to have felt that it should go to Richard II. He wanted Richard, his grandson, to be king after him. But then it, there's lots of talk about, you know, if, if Richard weren't to have any children, then who should it go to next? Because then you get this whole jumble of 
his other descendants. So you've got his second son only has a daughter and there seems to be some effort to cut her out of the line of succession, perhaps because she's a daughter. But, you know, talk about Salic law in France, which which is used to say that descent to the throne can only be through a male line. But that didn't exist in England. And Edward III has claimed the throne of France based on his descent from his mother. So based on the passage of of the crown through a female line. But there's lots of suggestion that John of Gaunt in particular, the third son, is keen to cut this kind of his niece out of the line of succession because it would bump him and his sons further up the line and make them the heirs to Richard II. So I think a lot of the reaction to the Black Prince's death is is sadness and shock that you've lost this national hero, but also a little bit of concern about what does this mean for the future? You know, Edward's son, Richard, is still a child when his dad dies. He's only 10 when he comes to the throne. We get a minority and that's never seen as a good thing. So I think amongst all of this sort of national sense of mourning that you've lost this hero, there is also worry about what his death means for the future. And, And I mean, we know that it would end before the end of the century in Richard II being deposed and and then 50 years after that in what we would call the Wars of the Roses. So if they were worried about that, they were probably right to be. I have one more question about that. But before we come back to the the claimants of the throne, let's let's go now to how Edward III dies. Yeah, so again, I mean, by 1377, his health is just failing. Um, He's in his mid-60s. He's led an incredibly active life. He's been king for 50 years. But by the end of it, he's he's bedridden. There is lots of suggestion that he's he's had strokes by this point. If you look at the effigy, I mean, you can Google a, a picture of his tomb effigy at Westminster Abbey. There is a suggestion that there is... You know, a dropping, a drooping on the left-hand side of his face, which which may reflect the fact that he'd had strokes. And certainly he's not taking an active part in government for the last few years of his reign. And his sons, particularly John of Gaunt, um, are sort of running the government on his behalf. And this leads to lots of concern about what John of Gaunt is up to. Because at the same time, you know, the Black Prince's health is failing as well. So he's not able to step in to that. And I think John of Gaunt gathers a lot of suspicion around about this time about what it is that he's up to simply because he's the next oldest surviving son who's able to lead his father's government. And and he, I think, is viewed with lots of suspicion about that. But yeah, Edward, Edward's kind of health fails. His son passes away before him. And on the 21st of June, 1377, he passes away uh, at the age of 64, um, and and there's lots of confusion about what happens on his deathbed. So for the last decade or so of his life, he's he's been having this affair with Alice Perez, um, and there's lots of suggestion that she is there with him when he dies, and we get varying stories, and it, it's hard not to see some of these as as kind of moralistic tales where you know the the wicked woman is used to be seem to be leading the man astray kind of thing. Um, And there's lots of stories that Alice Perez kind of steals a load of Edward III's jewellery while he's he's dying or when he's just died. Um, But the versions of the story that we we actually have in the Chronicles are that, you know, Edward is incredibly ill at the end. He's having to be fed with, with broth and with bread that's dipped in goat's milk just to sort of keep him alive. Um, and he he finally takes to his bed at Sheen Palace, um, and Alice is sort of at his side. So she's been in a period of exile because no one likes her, and when Edward is unable to protect her anymore because his health is failing, she's sort of packed off into exile, but she's able to come back, and one of the sources says that she sits with Edward and sort of talks to him about all of the, the happy times that he's ever had about hunting and the wars in France and all of that sort of stuff. But it said that in the sources that, you know, by doing this, she distracts his attention from his need to to confess his sins and make his peace with God 
before he dies. And also that, you know, having this woman who he's having an affair with at his bedside is sort of a blockage to him being able to confess his sins and, and be shriven before he, he actually dies and goes to, to heaven. Um, and so Alice is sort of there, seen as preventing all of this stuff. She gets between Edward and his ability to make peace with God before he dies. Um, and so all of all of Edward's other attendants kind of leave the room, you know, in a, a fit of pique, just don't know what to do and leave Alice with the king. So at that point, if she's stealing stuff, we don't know how anybody knows because we've been told that everybody has left the room. And the only other version that we have is that some priest appears partway through this whole scene um, to tell Edward that he's about to die and he has to repent and make his peace with God. Um, and that Edward actually listens and tells Alice to leave so that he can you know, be, be shriven by this priest before he dies. So again, if that version is true, Alice is leaving the room before Edward is dying. And again, we don't know how she stole rings. So I think I would think based on the fact that an awful lot of source material for the Middle Ages is simply aimed at making women look bad. I wonder whether they're not just using Alice as a sort of moral tale um, to, to explain away the king's weakness, the things that the king had done wrong, you know, blame them on Alice. And then just to, to cement her reputation, they have this scene where she kind of steals a load of jewellery from him just to make her this evil woman, I guess. Um, I don't think it's necessarily true. If it is true, I guess then probably she might have been looking at how she protects herself and her children with Edward. You know, they're not going to be hugely popular. They're not going to be provided for from the king's will. So maybe she felt like she needed to take some jewellery to make sure that her and her children could be taken care of. But there's not really any evidence that that she actually did take all of this jewellery. So any which way around, it seems like Edward's deathbed scene is a pretty lonely and fraught affair. How unfortunate for him and poor Alice, because it's kind of a no-win situation for her at that point. I was going to say exactly, you know, she what's she, what's she to do? If she takes something to provide for herself and her family, then she's a, a wicked thief. If she doesn't take it, then she's just accused of it because she's a, a woman who is seen to have had a bad influence on Edward, who you can sort of blame for all of his failings, if you like, or or anything like that. So... She's she's in an impossible situation, I think, and and potentially is just getting the blame for things that didn't happen. Exactly. There's there are not a lot of mistresses that come out in a in a great light at the end. No. Uh, so you had mentioned that Edward the Third he wanted his grandson Richard uh, to be king, as he did. But based on now your research or, or you know your knowledge of the monarchy at the time, do you think that John of Gaunt actually should have been the king? It's a really tricky one. That There is no kind of written way of answering this question. So we know when Richard I dies, for example, in 1199, he has said that he wants his heir to be Arthur, the Duke of Brittany, who is the son of Richard's younger brother, Geoffrey, but Geoffrey is already dead. So he's a grandson of Henry II. And we know that what actually happens in 1199 is that John succeeds Richard, who is Richard's younger brother, so the youngest son of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. And we never get an answer to this question of who has the better claim out of the next son of the, the last monarch or the oldest grandchild kind of thing, if that makes sense. You know, does, does Henry's younger son, Henry II's younger son, have a better or worse claim than a grandchild from one of Henry's older sons who's not alive anymore. And it's almost the same position that we have in uh, 1377 when Edward III dies. Who has the better claim to the throne? Is it the, the grandson of the king by his oldest son, or is it his next surviving son, John of Gaunt? And it seems that Edward, you know, Edward writes this document in which he says he wants Richard to succeed him, but there seems to be some pressure from John of Gaunt to as I say, take this niece, Philippa, out of the, the line of succession and put John and his sons in next. And I think people that's what people think John of Gaunt is doing when he has authority 
over Edward's government that he's sort of manoeuvring to get him and his sons in the best possible position. So I'm not sure that John was ever going to be able to overturn the desire for the Black Prince's son to be king. You know, the Black Prince is so well loved and would have been, you know, he only died a year before. I don't think there would have been a will not to allow his son to become king. But I think John of Gaunt seems to be sort of positioning himself to be the heir to that line by sort of bumping his older brother Lionel's daughter out of the way. So the the line of succession is is kind of really tricky. Nowhere is it laid out in statutes or in or by law at this point. Um, it's much more to do with what people believed or thought should happen. And to some extent, you know, who's able to make this stick? I think in 1199, John gets the throne because Eleanor of Aquitaine wants him to get it and make sure he gets it, not because he has a better right. And so in 1377, I think Richard II gets it because that was kind of the the king's dying wish. And he probably has some affection transferred to him from his father, the Black Prince. So he's not in too much danger of, of not succeeding to the throne. But there isn't a real legal answer or precedent. There isn't a document that you can go to and say, well, in this situation, when the king dies, this is what happens next. If his oldest son has died, but has a child, or if he doesn't have any sons, it just doesn't exist, unfortunately. So when the king dies, you, you're always at this risk of a big mess. It seems like such a simple answer, though, doesn't it? Like somebody just write it down and then we wouldn't have all this fighting if somebody well, had just written it down. What should have come next? Yeah, it would be nice. I mean, it, it's only in 1272 on the death of Henry III is the first time that the crown automatically passes to his son on his death. So that whole the king is dead, long live the king only starts in England in 1272 when Henry II dies, uh, sorry, Henry III dies and the, the crown passes automatically to his son who becomes Edward I immediately. Up until then, you had, effectively, you had an interregnum. So a king would die and there was no king until the, the next one had a coronation. And that's where you get lots and lots of rushing around when William II dies and his younger brother Henry I makes this dash to get crowned. When Stephen succeeds Henry I because he gets to London quickly and gets himself crowned. There's, there, there was always this worry that when there's no king, there's no king's peace, so there's no law. So law and order breaks down really quickly when a king dies. And it's only in 1272, sort of 100 years before Edward III's death, that they even managed to get this mechanism by which as soon as the king dies, his heir succeeds him immediately. So they they haven't even got as far down the road then as complex questions about grandchildren and nieces and nephews and things. So, you know, it is awkward and it's amazing that this stuff stays up in the air for century after century after century. Sure, sure. I mean, in in hindsight, right, or in retrospect, you think you can just answer it by just do it this way. But it really it really didn't seem that simple. No, king, kings so weren't now... very good at, at legislating for their own death. No king liked right. to think about their death or what was going to happen next. And you see that into the Tudor period as well you know they they don't like talking about their deaths and what will happen next right exactly exactly so now i i really do think that at some point maybe in our show notes or something attached to this we will put the family tree because we keep talking about it and and you're giving us such a clear picture but for for any of our listeners who are really not familiar with this it's it's difficult to kind of grasp who everybody is but now the big the main um issue, I guess you could say, in the Wars of the Roses at this point now is the Yorkists versus the Lancastrians. So can you explain to us how the York line and the Lancastrian line, where they came from and how were they able to say that they actually were the the next in line to become king? Right. The big question. If I can do this in under an hour, I'm going to reward myself with a chocolate bar. I, so <laughs> you deserve it, but we don't, you just, you explain it the way you need to explain it. Who cares about time, right? Right. So we know. I think you get a chocolate bar anyway for even knowing any of these I, I'm going to have a chocolate bar anyway because I love chocolate. So I'm just chocolate looking for excuses to have a chocolate bar. <laughs> right. um, we should have like a chocolate version of a drinking game. So every time I mention the word Edward, someone should take a bite of chocolate or something. I'm thrilled with that, actually. I think that's a great idea. And we should have discussed that prior to starting because having us both 
either drinking and or eating chocolate during this conversation would really add some pizzazz, I think. Definitely. It would have been good. I probably wouldn't have been able to talk by the end of it, though. So too many Edwards in the story. <laughs> we've, we've got Edward III dies in 1377. He's succeeded by his grandson, Richard II. For reasons beyond the scope of this chat, Richard ends up not very popular. And in 1399, he is deposed by his first cousin, Henry Bolingbroke. So John of Gaunt, that third son of Edward III, he dies in 1399. Richard II sort of goes to take all of that really big Lancastrian inheritance into his own hands. So he's going to pocket all of the money because Henry Bolingbroke is currently in exile for, for trying to rebel against Richard II. Henry doesn't like this, so he comes back to claim his inheritance. While Richard II is actually in Ireland... And when he gets to England, he sort of has everybody saying to him, do you know what, we've had enough of Richard now, why don't you just be king? And so it all sort of snowballs along and he ends up deposing Richard II and Henry of Bolingbroke becomes King Henry IV, the first of the Lancastrian kings. So the Lancaster line taking its title from, from John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. Uh, although, I mean, he, the title of Lancaster actually comes from John of Gaunt's first wife. So John isn't actually a Lancastrian in that sense, but He's the kind of patriarch of the House of Lancaster. So we have Henry IV, who uh, is king then through all sorts of threats and problems, one of which I'll come back to a little bit later, uh, until 1413, when he dies and is succeeded by his son as Henry V, who we know as the, the you know, famous warrior king of Agincourt and reigniting the Hundred Years' War with France and having some great success. But he dies in 1422, and he leaves behind him a nine-month-old baby to succeed him as King Henry VI, who is the third Lancastrian king. And Henry, so we have a, a, another long minority, and Henry grows up to be completely unlike his father. Um, so, I mean, people have, have said before, you know, if Henry V was the Lion of England, then Henry VI is the Lamb. Um, he's just not interested in war. He's not interested in fighting. He's much more interested in... Um, in peace, he's much more interested in religion. He founds lots of schools and colleges and things like that, builds lots of, of buildings, but doesn't want the Hundred Years' War with France. And Henry also has some, some mental health issues. So we know he has a complete breakdown by 1453. I think there are some signs of some issues sort of before and after that incident as well. Um, and he's he's basically viewed as a an ineffective not very popular king, but, you know, he's quite a nice guy. And I think the problem that you get begins to build towards the Wars of the Roses in 1447 when Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, who is Henry VI's uncle, so he's he's the youngest son of Henry IV, the youngest brother of Henry V, uh, and, and he's arrested for treason because Henry VI is, is kind of getting a bit paranoid and thinks his uncle is going to steal the throne from him. So he's arrested and he dies in custody. We we think of a stroke, so we don't think it's necessarily suspicious, although there were rumours at the time that Humphrey had been poisoned. But what's developed through Henry VI's reign and, and why Humphrey's death is a problem is two factions at Henry's court, which he's unable to reconcile. So you have a peace faction, which is what the king favours. And that sort of led by his great uncle, Henry Beaufort. So the Beaufort name there, I'll come back to the Beauforts in a little bit as well. Um, Henry Beaufort, the, the Bishop of Winchester, sort of leads the peace party, if you like. And Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, leads the party that wants to continue the war with France. So he wants to continue his brother, Henry V's policy of aggression with France. And I think the problem that you have with the death of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester is that for the first time, kind of opposition to the government's peace policies finds a home outside the House of Lancaster, and it, it comes to rest on Richard, Duke of York. So he very quickly becomes the, the, the leader of the opposition. And Richard, Duke of York, in sort of 1447, when this happens, is an incredibly important national figure. So as I mentioned before, he's descended from the fourth son of Edward III, Edmund of Langley, his dad has been executed for treason. He's inherited the York titles from his uncle Edward, who dies at Agincourt. 
So I think Richard Duke of York has problems because he's the son of a traitor. The House of York has made several attempts to rebel against the House of Lancaster um, during its, its earliest years. So he brings all of that with him. But he also brings with him another problem. And that problem is, is his Mortimer blood. So this is another name I'm going to throw out there. So the Mortimer family are incredibly important and very easy to overlook in the story of, of the 15th century and of the Wars of the Roses. They're important because that second son of um, Edward III, Lionel of Antwerp, so that daughter that he had, Philippa, she goes on to marry a man named Edmund Mortimer, who is the third Earl of March. And he's descended from that Roger Mortimer, the first Earl, who rebelled against Edward II all the way back at the start of our chat. Um, and their son, so Philippa and Edmund, have a son called Roger Mortimer, who is the fourth Earl of March. And he is widely considered by most people in England to be the heir presumptive to Richard II, while Richard has no children. So the heir presumptive is the person who is next in line to the throne, but whose position could be displaced. Uh, whereas the, the heir apparent is the person who is in line to the throne, but can't be supplanted by someone else's superior claim. So the heir presumptive can be replaced by the heir apparent. If Richard II had had a son, he would become the heir apparent. But until that point, um, this Roger Mortimer, the fourth Earl, is the heir presumptive. Now, he dies in 1398, the year before Richard is deposed, and he leaves behind him um, two children, uh, Edmund and Roger, who are, are young at this time. I think Edmund is about seven. So not in a position to press their own claim. So all through the 15th century, the first half of the 15th century, the, the House of Lancaster has this kind of lingering worry and concern about the Mortimer blood. Um, Edmund, the, the oldest of those children of the, the fourth Earl, grows up and becomes fifth Earl of March, and he dies. He's incredibly loyal to the Lancastrian regime, actually, but he dies in 1425 without any children. So all of his lands and possessions and that latent sort of lingering Mortimer claim to the throne, which is a threat to the House of Lancaster, all of that passes to Edmund's nephew. Now, unfortunately for that nephew, that nephew is Richard, Duke of York. The man who has already inherited all of the York stuff is now inheriting this Mortimer suspicion and threat as well. So I feel like from, from 1425 onwards, when Richard, Duke of York is still in his kind of mid-teens and not politically active, I think he is immediately viewed as a potential threat and a potential cause for concern. And I think that follows him all the way through the rest of his career. And I think he spends the 1430s, the 1440s, and a lot of the 1450s desperately trying not to be a rebel, desperately trying not to attract suspicion, not to cause trouble, but also to try and help the king. And sometimes he asserts his his belief in his right to to support the king and help the king too strongly because henry is incredibly close to his beaufort relatives so these are those relatives who are also descended from john of gaunt via his third marriage to catherine swinford so they begin as an illegitimate line descended from john of gaunt but they are legitimized by the pope and in parliament when their parents get married and so are legitimate nobility. They become the Dukes of Somerset throughout the 15th century and play an incredibly important role in the Wars of the Roses. And much of the early Wars of the Roses can actually be characterised as a fight between Edmund Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset, and Richard, Duke of York, rather than it being a dynastic thing about the crown. And, and this, this really carries on that earlier faction the, the peace party led by Henry Beaufort, the Bishop of Winchester. I mean, he dies not long after Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester and is succeeded by the Beaufort family and Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. All of his support kind of transitions to Richard, Duke of York. So those two factions are carried on into the next generation and they're almost set on a collision course. 
that we would call the Wars of the Roses, because Henry the Henry the Sixth can't force these people to come to terms and behave themselves. He just doesn't have the authority and the the personality to do that. They end up on this collision course, and and Somerset and York kind of crash into each other, and that really kicks off all of the problems. Um, and I think you know the Wars of the Roses. If we think about it as a dynastic struggle, for my money, doesn't really start until. 1460 which is when york actually claims the throne i think everything up to that point is york desperately trying not to take that step but when he does take that step in 1460 um it's all done in parliament so we're actually lucky that it's one of the rare things in this period that we have really well documented because it's all in the parliament roles and everyone is trying to be really really careful about what they're doing because it's so close to treason um and, and if any parliament roles are ever funny or amusing to read, it's these. And, and you know, I would suggest reading them if, if anybody can get access to them and, and viewing it as this kind of almost slapstick comedy playing, you know, past the hot coals around. Because nobody wants to answer the question that we've just talked about. Who has a better right to the throne? Because what York says now is, you know, forget the fact that I'm Richard Duke of York. Yeah, I'm descended from the fourth son of, of Edward III. But I'm actually descended from the second son of Edward III as well. And given that Henry VI is descended from his third son, does my descent from the second son make me better qualified to be king than his descent from the third son? And this really causes everyone in Parliament to kind of scratch their heads and they you know, they go and fetch the sergeants at law who say, oh, we can't answer this question and they go and fetch a whole load of judges who say, well, we can't answer this question. And then they put it to the House of Lords and all of the House of Lords are like, well, we really don't want to answer this question. Um, but they end up having to admit that that Richard, Duke of York's case can't be argued with. His descent, as far as they're concerned, trumps that of Henry VI. So you get this weird um, compromise called the Act of Accord, which which settles that... Henry VI will remain king for the rest of his life because, unlike Richard II, Henry isn't unpopular. He hasn't really done anything offensive. So nobody really wants to depose him. So he'll remain king for the rest of his life, but then he'll be succeeded by York and his sons as as his heirs. So the, the throne will transition to the House of York at that point. And the Act of Accord, I mean... It's not really anybody's ideal solution, but what it really does is wind up Henry VI's wife, Margaret of Anjou, whose son, Edward, the Prince of Wales, is completely disinherited by this arrangement. And so that kicks off the big dynastic element of the Wars of the Roses, where the House of York fight the House of Lancaster about who has the right to the throne. And it's about is descent from the second son of Edward III through a female line better or worse than descent from Edward III through his third son in an all-male line? And that's just an impossible question to answer. And that's why they end up fighting about it. So I don't know if that was brief or if that was way too long, but that's kind of as short as I can get the whole uh, Edward III to the, the Wars of the Roses piece. Well, I think it was perfect. And again, I have to be literally looking at the tree as you're talking so that I can see that he was descended from the one son's line, but also from Lionel's line. And it's very helpful to actually be having it in front of you. But the one part that you did not answer that I was hoping you would just throw in and I wouldn't have to ask it because I don't want to get in trouble, but you didn't. So what do you think? Who do you think makes the most sense to have been uh, the heir i guess to edward the third but then even to richard the second and all the way down the line what do you think it's tricky because i mean if richard the second hadn't been unpopular and had children we wouldn't have this conversation and i think even once we get into the 1450s with three generations into lancastrian kingship if henry the sixth hadn't been so useless as a king we wouldn't be having this conversation and worrying about this because nobody would have cared. <clears throat> I don't think that York would ever have pressed his claim if Henry VI had been successful or even just okay as a king. 
I think, I mean, all of my sympathies in the Wars of the Roses are with the Yorkist faction, I guess, and that's not much of a secret, but it probably affects the way that I think about this. Because my issue is, is as I said earlier, if you think about, if we ignore, so we've got the Black Prince and Richard II and that, that line ends rightly or wrongly. Is it possible for them to, to legitimately have written Philippa of Clarence out of the line of succession? As I said, Edward III based his entire claim to the throne of France on the descent of a claim through his mother. So he has set a precedent there that as far as the English king is concerned, the right to the crown can be passed on through a female line, which would make the Mortimer family in the line of succession and that would put them, for my money, between Richard II and John of Gaunt and his children. So it feels like the Mortimers should have had the throne in 1399, but obviously because of the way it was taken and because of the age of the Mortimer children, they didn't. And I think ultimately in 1460, when York makes his claim, he lays all of this out in Parliament. And... Parliament accepts, you know, they can't find, at one point they send all of the lords away and they say to the lords, you know, go away and come back with at least one objection each to York's title. And they all come back with these these fairly weak objections, which York is able to answer quite easily. And then they just don't have anything else. And they're forced to accept the absolute logic of what he's saying, that his descent from the second son trumps Henry VI's descent from the third son. But again, it's not helped because at one point in these proceedings, they go to Henry VI and say, Sire, you know, can you can you give us an argument? Can you structure a case against what York is saying? And Henry just says, no, I can't. Can you do it for me? Which is which is hardly inspiring in a king. So, again, if Henry had had a bit more about him, we may never have got to the point of having this conversation. But given the precedent that Edward III himself had set, I kind of feel like that descent from Lionel of Antwerp through Philippa of Clarence is legitimate and did give Richard, Duke of York, a better claim to the throne, albeit, you know, he's nearly 40 years of age by the time he actually presses that claim because I don't think he wanted to. So I do think on the bare facts in 1460 that Richard, Duke of York, had a better claim to the throne. But I would always fall back on this thing that that if Henry VI had been a bit more successful... No one would ever have wanted to depose the man who had been king for for 40 years by that point. I think nearly every sentence in our whole conversation today, though, probably can go by that same theory. I mean, if Edward the Black Prince hadn't died or if Richard II wasn't deposed or if Henry VI wasn't so, I guess, weak, I guess you could call You know, there's there's all the what ifs. Um but either way, it's also no secret that my sympathies are with the York, so Wait. I'm totally okay with your answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Sorry, it is Rebecca. it is it is difficult because you know we're in the world of what ifs. But I think if you strip away all of the what ifs, for my money, Richard Duke of York's case is watertight, and he did have a better claim to the throne than Henry VI did in 1460. That sounds like a perfect recap or or you know ending note right there he had a watertight case that's it (laughs) it totally makes sense so with that i want to say again of course thank you so much to matthew lewis for coming back on the show today i think you did a really great job of taking us through edward the third's family tree and giving us all the details that we need um to be able to understand the Wars of the Roses and how they happen and why they happened. Um, And then again, of course, thank you to all of our listeners who wrote in with the questions today. Everybody always has such interesting things to talk about. And I think it's really helpful. We couldn't do Ask the Expert without you. So before I let you go, Matthew, is there anything that you want to talk about as far as something you want to plug? Is there any, any books that you're writing or any talks that you're giving? Anything that you want our listeners to hear about? Um, I mean, there's all of my books. You know, I've written quite extensively about the Wars of the Roses, about Richard, Duke of York. I've, I've written a biography of Richard, Duke of York, which I hope will explain some of these issues around the Yorkist claim to the throne um, in a bit more detail and possibly a bit more clearly than I have. I had not any chocolate throughout all of this, so I have chocolate while I'm writing, so it probably makes more sense. To clear your head, right. Um, 
and and you know about Richard the Third and the princes in the tower and all of those things that are my my kind of obsession. Um, and if you like a little bit more medieval stuff in your life as well, there's my podcast Gone Medieval. Um, I have a new episode of that out every Saturday, and there's an episode out every Tuesday with Dr. Kat Jarman. So. Um, without stepping on any Tudor toes, you can come over and join us in the medieval world there too. Oh, it doesn't, there, there is enough to go around for everybody. No stepping on toes here. We're so excited to listen to your podcast as well. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fantastic to come back again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.